This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. We got to remember, like, the, the last time that teachers really refused to go to school other than this pandemic, you know when that was? Brown versus the Board of Education when they integrated to schools. When white teachers refused to teach black students. It took a whole year off. Some schools, not all of them. Some of the yeah. students are not going to school. I'm not. So the disease and the, and the virus, you know what I'm saying, was black students. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Hey, Farm Fam. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. I want to thank you for giving the show a listen today. Today is a continuation of our prior conversation. On the last episode, I talked about the book Cast with Aaron Jones, who's an educational uh, equity consultant, with Alan Belton, who is the president of Pacific Lutheran University, and with Hallie Kanigi, who is one, one of the steering committee members of Tacoma Against Nazis. If you have not heard that episode, I highly recommend you go listen to it. Uh, the response has been great. It's a phenomenal book, a good conversation, and really thoughtful people sharing their points of view. Um, Aaron told a story that moved me, frankly, about some of her experience with Cast and uh, that conversation is worthwhile. Today's really a continuation of that conversation. If you are attuned to my advocacy, you know that law enforcement and educational equity are at like the head of my mind and head of my heart a lot of the times. And so today I'm going to chop it up with a friend of mine named Logic Amen. Uh, Logic is a, let's see, he's a lot of things, man. Logic is a content creator. Logic is a speaker. Logic is a storyteller. Logic is a musician. And I got to know Logic Amen as the vice principal or assistant principal at Lincoln High School uh, where he still works. And so I wanted to talk with Logic about some of the intersections of CAST, the book, and CAST, the concept, with the idea of K-12 educational equity and law enforcement. And that's the conversation we had. Uh, we're going to be talking today, or we talked today, uh, I'm recording this after the conversation, we talked today uh, about the intersection of CAST with the school-to-prison pipeline, the intersection of CAST with standardized testing, the intersection of CAST with law enforcement, and the role that law enforcement has in maintaining CAST. I think this is a great conversation. Logic is always insightful. Uh, he's always coming off the top rope with a hot take that catches me off guard. He did that as well this episode. Uh, I'll let you hear it and tell me when you hear it. Well, you hear when I yell, hot take, hot take. But anyway, uh, that's our conversation today. And upcoming on the show, we have a couple more conversations I'm excited about. Uh, one, we'll be talking about Jenny May with vaccines. Uh, Jenny May is a project manager who works for a vaccine company. And she's going to be telling us basically about what is happening with the vaccine rollout in the States. And then we also are working on an episode with a professor from PLU talking about the interwar period and like the lessons we can learn uh, from what happened in Europe between World War I and World War II. And if you know history, you know that's going to tie back to a book I read in the past called uh, The Anatomy of Fascism, because that's the period when fascism rose. All right. So with all that admin out of the way, one more request. If you're listening to the show and you're enjoying what you hear, please uh, think about leaving a review for the show. If you leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the F they're calling it now, uh, that helps people find the show and helps grow the audience. And that's important because I think the conversations we're having worthwhile and should be heard by, and should be heard by more folks. All right. So all that admin out of the way, let's get to my conversation with Logic. Hey, Logic, thank you for joining me, man. It is eight in the morning. How are you doing this morning? Man, I'm tired, man. It's a Saturday, but, you know, it's, this is, you know, this is what we do. I'm, I stay woke. <laughs> I appreciate you making the time. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about CAST and in particular the implications for this book on educators and on K-12 schooling. There's a lot of folks who I know who want to run with this book in the classrooms, and I'm like, oh, pump the brakes, pump the brakes. Uh, just just, just for, for, for my benefit, I'm really curious, how did this book first come on your radar? 
Cass first came on my radar watching um, one of my uh, podcasts. I think I was watching, um, it was either Roland Martin or uh, or um, Karen Hunter. I, I can't remember which one, but it came via podcast, and I just seen her name, Isabel Wilkerson. And um, before that, I had the warmth, the warmth of um, other sons. Her her previous book before that, and so it just came on um, my radar through that, and she just started talking about the book. I was like, you know, you know, caste versus race, and how you know. Uh, <clears throat> race is the meat and cast is the skeleton and how she was drawing that distinction and using those, those, those three prototypes of uh, Nazi Germany and um, a caste system in India. And then of, of course the state sanction uh, apartheid here in America that we know as uh, Jim Crow. And so she was uh, going by that and it just really sparked my interest from there. What are some of the ways in which this book moved your thinking about the current situation in America? Like, did this book make you more hopeful, less hopeful? Like, what what did this what did this do to you emotionally about like thinking about being black and living in America today? Oh, it definitely, it definitely inspired less hope. I don't even like that word. Um, hope mm-hmm. is someone you're married to, right? <laughs> <laughs> hope Hope left the room, and that's a metaphor. And I always I like to use the words like trust, and or um, you know, or even facts. You know what I'm saying? Or it is what it is. Because reason why I say that, and I'm not trying to be um, no pun intended to cast a word Nazi and and be super petty, but yeah. the reality of it is it reminds you that things go in cycle, and things aren't changing, and. If things aren't changing, you can't read a book like that and be, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, saying hopeful of the future when you see things happening over and over and over again. The story that she tells about the little boy who played, um, the little black boy who played on the baseball team and his team won the championship and they all went swimming, but he couldn't Mm -hmm. swim. And his coach begged him begged the um the, the the pool manager to let him you know swim and they said all right everyone has to get out of the pool and he has to stay on the raft and we'll have to drag him from the outside he can't even put his any of his you know limbs you know saying or fingers in the water you know and you know he just went home alone that day and, and that's that that event changed his life like we still see stuff like that happening yeah. in different ways in a more sophisticated way and you know modern day America. Yeah, I'm struck by you calling it cyclical because something that I've been thinking about is how the demands that the Black Lives Matter movement are making of law enforcement today are basically indistinguishable from the demands that are being made of law enforcement in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. So like the demands of the Panthers, the demands of black educators and like black radicals in the 60s are the exact same demands being made today about human dignity and about uh, the use of police violence. And those same demands are the same demands that are made after Reconstruction ended. And so essentially, something that this book has led me to that I think I understood already, but I maybe needed it laid out for me is, is that Black folks have been trying to disrupt the system that's in place in the United States for the entire existence of the United States. And Black folks as 12% of the population do not have the capacity to move the country. If we're really going to move on from caste, that's white folks' work. If we're working in any of their systems, it's, it's, it's our work, too. And it's mm-hmm. also our work to build alternative systems just in case that system fails us. So we'll have something to fall back on and we're not dependent on that system. So I think it's it's our work to work within those systems. OK, here's how I see it. You feel me? I can't just say it's white people's work because I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them as a system to do it by themselves. If I just stood back and say, Okay, man, y'all started this problem. Y'all got to fix it. Like, but they're really good at perpetuating the same problem. No, for sure. For sure. Even like with the pandemic is a perfect example. If I'd be like, well, you guys fix it. Then it's like, but the rich keep getting richer. The poor keep getting poorer. The performance gap, you know what I'm saying? And our education system keeps widening or just stays the same. It's just statically the same. I don't trust they have the consciousness, the fortitude. Um, 
the ethics to actually fix it by themselves. And I'm not even talking about individual white people. I'm talking about a system that's facilitated by their value system. So if I ask them to fix it, it's like them still sitting at the table without my input. And that's their value system at the table, the only one at the table. And that's the value system that's driving oppression. So I just don't trust it. So I'm like this. I work within the system because most of my people are in a system. And we know a vitamin, a vitamin doesn't work, you know what I'm saying, on the outside of a, 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 of a body. It has to be inside the body. I think that I'm that, that vitamin or, or that seed, but I'm also growing seeds outside the system in case it fails you know what I'm saying? The people who need it, you know, um, you know, in the form of like some free breakfast programs or, you know, free health clinics or something like that. Not even that big on the magnitude, but just even just, you know, teaching, you know, poor and oppressed, marginalized people how to heal yourself in your own home, using your home um, as the first institution, only second to your, um, your actually individual self. Even if it's just as small as that, that's a great achievement. If I can just teach someone, well, the schools ain't getting it popping. See, this is a perfect example of it. The pandemic is a perfect example. We can complain about the schools, they're not teaching, or we depend on the schools. But what happens when the schools fail? And then you got to work remotely. Do you have the infrastructure within your individual home to provide that education for your child? Are you... Um, do you have that infrastructure to give that child those two meals that the school gives you, you mm -hmm. know, gives your children now that it's not in service? If it's not, if your school is not equipped to do that, then for lack of a better word, I'm not trying to be harsh or judgmental. You, you failed. Your home should have pretty much everything you need. You know what I'm saying? Within context, and you, you know, unless you get a compound fracture or something or have a heart attack, you got to go to the hospital. But yeah. you should be able to, to grow your own food. That's where I'm at, at a deficit. I don't know how to grow. I don't have a garden. I don't know how to grow. My, I don't, if my food runs out, I ain't got no canned goods. I guess you'll be seeing my ribs soon. <laughs> so there's a couple of points you touched on there that I want to kind of tug on a little bit. Um, the first one is talking about like whiteness as a construct. And I think this is really important. So like, as we have this conversation, we are not talking about individual white people who are listening to this or not listening to this. I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about a structure that exists in America and a structure that's undergirded by white supremacy. And I think that's why, okay. okay. I was going to say this later on, but Oddly enough, like I struggle with the term cast as Wilkerson's vehicle because like the the term that I've come to appreciate was actually by a conservative writer named David Frum. And he talks about the racial order in America. And so the racial order in America is, is that like white folks belong at the top. And then there are some talented, uber talented black folks and brown folks that get to make it into the upper echelon. Those are your LeBrons, your Serena Williams, your Oprah's, Barack Obama's. But then the mass of black folks are at the bottom of the caste structure and the bottom of the race structure. And essentially, retail politics in America is about convincing the majority of white voters that they are above the black voters and whoever, whichever party does that gets the white vote. So that's that's the, the way that Frum poses the racial order. I think it's interesting as a Canadian, he sees America that way, but like that's a different conversation. You oh. said something else though. I, you said something else I want to lean into though. You talked about healing. And the healing thing is something that like I think I've taken for granted in the past. Uh, I've convinced myself about like emotional invincibility and like how strong I am. And a lot of your writing and communication about like the healing that needs to happen and that people need from everyday trauma has really like has stayed with me over the years. Uh, can you hit folks who are listening to this and don't know your work about the griot parties and what you're trying to trying to accomplish with those? Yeah, the griot party experience is spoken word storytelling theater so we can create those safe places so we can heal. And it's basically the simple concept of hearing a person's story to resolve conflict even. Like if I have a problem with, you know, with Nate, you know what I'm saying? You know, a, a simple story of, you know, where his anger and where his hurt come that fed into that situation can actually help heal that situation. It's not as, 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 as corny as it seems. It's actually way more sophisticated. I mean, the griot being the storyteller or the historian, um, that's the French word for it. That was the colonizer gave those people. But the original word was a jolly. And they say within the griot is 10,000 books, an entire library. So when, when they came in and they wanted to um, take over, you know, um, 
um, a community or um, a nation or a tribe, the first thing they do is neutralize the grill because, you know, we like to say, you know, hey, peace, queen, peace, king, you know, we kings and queens. That's okay. That's fine. I am a king. You know, I have a king within me, but the, the king is the elite. Mm-hmm. They were the elitists. They were ruling the people. The majority of us were griots and farmers and, and peasants, you know, working the land. And so I brought that concept to Seattle because a griot is a um, historian and a, um, a poet and a teacher to let everyone know that we were here. It's a cultural custodian. And we never want to be wiped clean. Um, I heard one of your past podcasts and you were talking about gentrification and black people being displaced from their their neighborhoods and whatnot. And without any kind of footprint left, no cultural DNA left, and not even a mural. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a mural in some cases. Well, the grill preserves that. It's like, no, we were here. Let me tell you a story. And um, we seek to reclaim the gentrified areas of Seattle. You know what I'm saying? Um, we're not saying that um, we don't want to share um, Seattle or any neighborhood in the world that has been traditionally um, black, but it shouldn't come out at the expense that we're losing something in that exchange. And too many times when we work with whiteness as a social construct, like you said, um, I want to add on to that. I see whiteness as a value system. And too many times when we work with whiteness as a value system, every time we exchange, we're at, we come out at, as, at a deficit, mm. losing something. So the Griot Party experience, we actually have one uh, February 28th of this month, the last day of Black History Month. And the theme is Ancestors. It's available on Zoom. Um, you can contact me via my email, logicimen at gmail.com. Hit me up on Facebook. I'm on there. Um, I'm also on um, Instagram and also Twitter um, to get that Zoom invite. But we want to bring as many people in there as possible. It's a beautiful experience. And we also use it as a, um, a safe place to build commerce, um, you know, for um, business owners and whatnot, and just talk about um, how can we get mentorships um, going in, in our community and things of that nature. Um, because I, we all we got, man. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And one of the things I want to say, too, the last thing I want to say is Black people got to understand that we're not a monolith when we heal. Each black person heals differently. And I, that's why I really appreciate the title of your, your podcast is Nerd Farmer. I was probably a couple sports away and a couple really cool, popular outfits away from being a, just a full-time nerd. And, yeah. you know, and now being a nerd is cool. And it should, it, but it was always cool for me. It was always cool to learn and show off how much I know about any specific thing. You start talking about hip-hop, I start nerding out. You know what I'm saying? You start talking about Black history, I start nerding out. You start talking about sports, I start nerding out. And we got to understand we heal different ways. And that's, we got to really start loving each other for the, the diversity and the healing that takes place. Because trauma hits us differently. It really does, man. And and this this white supremacy, this Whiteness as a social construct and a value system has hit black and brown people in so many different ways. We're sitting there fighting each other, but all we are is just really hurt. And we just need safe places to heal. I think about two experiences I had at a griot party. Um, One was watching a student who somebody who I had conflict with before and somebody who I thought was somebody was not interested in school stand up and talk about why they did not appreciate the schooling that they were receiving, but do so in a just brilliantly articulate way that demonstrated that like their learning was not the problem, the instruction and the environment they were being subjected to was the problem. That inspired my, my griot talk that I gave her, my story that I shared, that I said, these schools ain't built for you. And this is something that I think about constantly. You were talking about like the value structure and the set of values that come along with like whiteness, air quotes, as a corporation and as, and as a value set. And schools are something that I've commented multiple times, are a structure that was basically created to reinforce that value set, like nose to butt. And essentially, like schools are designed by middle class white folks for middle class white folks 
to replicate middle-class white folks and then turn black minds and brown minds into middle-class white folks or folks who are middle-class white folks adjacent. And this brings me to kind of why I wanted to talk to you because this book is a tour de force explanation of all the ways in which the social systems, the legal systems, the economic systems in America are constructed to oppose and hold down blackness, not just black people, but blackness. And in particular, like through political violence and political, uh, political violence in the past, uh, law enforcement violence in the past and the present. What is the role or what is the function of this book in informing policymaking and education today? Like I, 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 there's, there's folks out there who are like, everybody needs to read this book, but like, no, no, let, let me, let me ask you, like, what, what is the role of this book in shaping the discourse around schooling today? If you don't build a curriculum around the book, then, and I don't, I'm not trying to disrespect it. It's a, it's a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. It's very triggering though. It's almost like it, it borders trauma, trauma porn. It really yeah. does. It really does. It, it, um, but if there's no curriculum built around this book, um, if there's no um, curriculum that's built around this book to analyze certain data, to to focus and highlight the caste systems that exist within our school systems, and then the programs and the instruction that we're going to, and the professional development, um, community partnerships that we're going to bring in to break down those caste systems within our school system. The book is just that, a book. And I don't think she wants it to be just a book, something to sit up and that your furniture can hold up and looks really good and is pretty and has colorful words. That's, you know, for a book to be something powerful, it has to be more than a book. Yeah. You know, when Pablo Ferrer wrote Pedagogy of Oppressed, that's not a book. That's a mind state. That's a mindset. And so, you know, for it to be more than just a book, there has to be, you know, curriculum built around it. There has to be um, uh, policymakers around it, creating some kind of policies around it when it comes to changing what is mandatory for our children, you know, to learn before they graduate. Mm-hmm. And I just, when we look at our, our content areas and our requirements, you know what I'm saying, our core content to graduate, you know, this would really fall into social studies. But there's nothing really that joins social studies and humanities together where the practicum says to meet standard, you have to show that you serve people. You have to show that you deconstruct this color class caste system. That isn't, that isn't the rubric to meeting standard. At some point, we got to get really, really serious about what we're trying to do. Because like you said, if not, we're just putting colorful books in front of us just to spit out kids on a conveyor belt to get financial debt going to college and just, you know, perpetuating, you know, saying the class and racial divide. So, so many different thoughts. There's a, a, a style of teaching that exists in American schooling that goes, I want to tell black kids about the world the way it is. Like black kids don't know about the world the way it is already. And so then I'm going to expose them to some of the most raw, some most traumatizing uh, works in literature and works in nonfiction. And then from being exposed to it, their lives will be transfer- transformed and they'll be better off on the other side. And this is like the, this is the, the, the well-intending educator who's like, well, these kids have to read Mark Twain and Huck Finn. Like I, I, I read Huck Finn. It's a fine book, but like that book isn't going to transform a kid's life without like the, like you're talking about the, the other things present in there. Okay. So, so you're talking about how this book essentially is a important book, but it cannot be the only step in a conversation happening in a classroom. I agree with that. Like this book needs to be supported, supported with action steps 
with some sort of like service and real life connection for sure, for sure. How about to like the adult side of schools? What is the role of this book in informing the work that like teachers and school and district administrators should be doing and how they should be designing their systems and practices uh, in helping kids? Yeah, that flows right into what I was going to, yeah. I think the book looks at the, the horrors of what it talks about in there and saying, if, do I see this happening in my, um, in our school? So I'm a part of the, um, the, the book study, um, led by one of our uh, social studies uh, teachers. And she, um, she's also, um, over, um, ASB and we're reading the book together and then we break the book down. And one of the things that I made a comment with the, um, the students, by the way, the students are phenomenal. Like they're breaking this stuff down. I love how the book is, 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 is pushing that rigor. And it's really, and I like how the teacher is really scaffolding, you know what I'm saying? That instruction and that delivery to the point where I, I could ask the children in one session, I said, do you see a caste system at Lincoln High School? And they're like, yeah, I do. I do. So that's data. That's data. So how are you going to use that data if you're an administrator to drive your leadership? How are you going to use that data if you're a teacher to drive your instruction? Well, as an administrator, I'm driving that because I'm looking, okay, what kind of programs, clubs, or groups do my children need to break down that caste system? What kind of spaces do I need to create on a regular basis where we analyze that those caste system and we use children as our co-leaders, not our subordinates, not someone we talk down to, but our co-leaders, you know, our peer learners. A lot of adults and teachers and administrators do not see children as peer learners. That's mm-hmm. a problem. You teach to learn so you can, you know what I'm saying, learn to teach. But we need them to say, Mr. Amen, I read this book. It talks about caste. It talks about the, you know, the atrocities of the past. I see the past right here in the present. Let me tell you the caste system at Lincoln High School. Hmm, that's good data. Maybe we need a black student union. Why don't we have a black student union? Hmm. Lincoln does have one, but it's 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 not completely, you know what I'm saying, fully operating and functional. You know what I'm saying? You know, of course the pandemic hit that. Or um this book talks about the emotional trauma caused by a white value system that oppresses people when they just try to live, when they just, when they're nine years old and play on a baseball team and just want to celebrate by on a hot day, jumping in the pool. Where are the resources within our school? Where are the safe places that not only, um, that all kids can, can heal that suffer from a caste system. So that's the reason why during the pandemic, I started Minds Matter 253. I got a, a group of educators from all different backgrounds and said, I want to specifically target our black and brown students um, from um, with African descent. You know, start there. If other students want to join that are that fit that category, then we'll you will use the group of adults, which is about 13. We'll splinter off and create those individual ones, you know, for the LGBTQ, you know, maybe for our, our Latino um, students, maybe for our immigrant students, maybe just for our, our women students who don't feel comfortable even being in a room with other guys because they're a distraction. And I started that. Um, and then two, two weeks later, you know what I'm saying, one of our, you know, uh, former students um, committed suicide. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, Cast has to be a u- used as like not as colorful, you know, reading material. It's like it's a diagnosis of your school. It's a it, it's a temperature check for your school. It's a th- thermometer. It's like you take that book in your hallways after reading the pages, and you look for all those people in your hallways. Who are the dalids in your ha- in your hallways? And what are you doing to eliminate? That caste system that perpetually, historically, puts down Dalits in that Indian in that Indian caste, you know, saying um, culture, and so you got to use it as a diagnostic tool for your school. 
we're, 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 all right. So we'll take a break here. And then we'll take a break. When we come back, um, I want to lean more into that diagnostic thinking. And I also want to get your take on what this book says about America today, in particular about education and law enforcement. So we'll be back. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MovedToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading and listening to the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. The Channel 253 Network is a network of local podcasts telling you stories, giving you points of view, and like having just honest conversations about community and things that impact our neighborhoods and our city. Like I may not be in Tacoma, but Tacoma is always in me. Uh, when Logic is talking about things happening at Lincoln High School, he's talking about kids from Hilltop, from East Tacoma, from the South End. Uh, when we're having these conversations, we're talking about our community. If you like what you're hearing in this conversation and want to support our work, think about joining Channel 253 as a member. Your membership dollars help keep us afloat, and it is $4 a month or $40 a year. As a member of Channel 253, you get access to our member-only show, Off the Record, with Bruce or Doug, and also our Channel 253 Slack, which is honestly a very fascinating place to be right now. There's conversations where people are talking specifically about how they can leverage their personal relationships to move local officials in the right direction about law enforcement, and like that's the work ahead of us. And so, again, if, you were, if you're enjoying the show, join us as a member, channel253.com slash membership. Logic. Uh, so first off, I love that you were being an arch professional and didn't want to name names talking about that book study. So for folks listening, uh, the teacher who is facilitating that book study is Megan Holyoke, who is the co-host of IWL on the network. And so Megan and Ivan talking about this work and this book, uh, some of the kids in that book study are former students of mine. And so I just want to shout out Megan for that work. Logic, what does this book say to you? Well, let me, let me back up. Most of the activism that I'm engaged in online and in life back in the States was around educational equity issues. However, most of my activism or like commentary outside of the United States since I moved has been about law enforcement and reforms. But those are just two sides of the same coin. Like, I had a transformative experience in like 2007 at a conference at PLU when the concept of the school to prison pipeline was introduced to me and the idea of the prison industrial complex. And it became cl very clear to me that like our society views many kids at places like Lincoln High School where you work and I worked for a decade as disposable. And if they don't get if they don't get with the program at the school, then there's a plan for them that involves either mass incarceration or menial labor for the rest of their life. And both of those like lead to lower life expectancy. So like there's a script written. I, I, I ask I ask you essentially, how does reading this book inform the way that you're viewing issues? Of, let's start with police first. We'll move to education second. How does this book inform the way that you're viewing issues with law enforcement, in particular, given that you're Seattle-based and that the Seattle Police Department seems to be so Seattle Police Department all the time? Well, fun fact for everyone out there in the world, Seattle's a very unique place when we talk about this because not only was their police department under investigation by the DOJ, but also the school district for their practices. Mm. 
So that shows you without a doubt, like there is a connection between the school and the prison industrial complex when your police force is under the investigation of the Department of Justice and also your school district. You know what I'm saying? What it told me about like law enforcement is, is that you mentioned a, a key word, script. There's a script out there. And if you look at the, the word cast, you take out the E at the end and you have cast. So this is a play. This is theater that's being acted out. Law enforcement enforces certain rules and standards and laws to make sure people stay on cast. And they read a script. Part of that script is reading you your rights if you don't follow <laughs> the law. Yeah, yeah. Law enforcement are, are people who are, and I'm being serious now, they're, 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 they're placeholders, making people, making sure placeholder people stay in their place. They play their role in a cast. They're making sure that, you know what I'm saying, Bobby, who's supposed to play, you know what I'm saying, Jim, you know what I'm saying, never, ever, ever tries to flip the script and, and be Mark Twain or even write his own play. But that's the same thing the education system does. It keeps people, you know what I'm saying, in this box. It marginalizes people, spits people out on conveyor belts. Mm-hmm. They're two systems that's working together. I mean, it's only a matter of time. We can't talk about, like, abolish the police, defund the police. It's only a matter of time that you follow the breadcrumbs and you say the same thing about our education system. That's <laughs> we have our first hot take. No, so, so, no, so, so <laughs> I was waiting for that. So unpack that for me, because, because, because somebody hears that and they're like, that's crazy talk. But like, I, I know what you're spitting. Like, like, talk us through that, please. Look. Look, I'm going to be a responsible educator, man. I don't, I don't, I don't. The only games I play in this is chess. And it, it just, when I wake up in different situations, what I want to be today, I want to be a pawn. I want to be a king or queen or a rook or a bishop or, you know what I'm saying? Or a knight. I'm going to hit you like this, man. And I, look, I'm going to say this already. I don't have anything against guilds. I don't have anything against unions. I don't have anything against police officers or educators. I think they're both systems that we all need to work in, mm. change for the betterment of the people. But if we get it, if we get a law enforcement officer that uses excessive force, and we see it, and say they run over some people, or they put a knee on their neck. Um, or they do something that's very, very heinous to a human being over selling CDs or cigarettes. People that come to their defenses, it's their unions, their guilds, to protect yeah. that unethical treatment. But it's the same thing that happens in our school districts. You got teachers that are not performing good. You got administrators that are not performing good. You know what I'm saying? Those same structure those unions are going to come and defend that unethical treatment of that of that human being. They 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 work the same way. Yeah. It's a system to keep a certain amount of people in power. That's why I went into education. I have I have family members who are law enforcement, and that's why I, I respect law enforcement. You know what I'm saying? But I'm going to be critical of their practices. You know what I'm saying? I got a lot of respect for. They go off there and they risk their lives. And I got a family full of educators. My, my auntie, you know what I'm saying, is, is, the, is the superintendent of Cincinnati Public Schools. Okay? Um, but the reality of it is when my law enforcement, you know what I'm saying, uh, partners come to me and say, man, when are you going to join the force, man? And I said, no, nah, I'm going into education. I'm trying to get to them before, you know, you do. You know, I'm trying to get to them so they don't get to you. You know, when I became an administrator, you know, hey, you know, administrators come in, hey, pat me on the back, man. Welcome to the dark side. I said, well, the difference between you and I is I'm bringing a torch. You know what I'm saying? So we got to be really serious about the work we do in the education system. We're part of the problem. 
But the good part is, it's a part of every single answer is a problem. You know what I'm saying? So we're, we're, we're here for um, a reason. We got to remember, like, the, the last time that um, teachers really refused to go to school other than this pandemic, you know when that was? Brown versus the Board of Education when they integrated the schools. When white teachers refused to teach black students. Took a whole year off. Some schools, not all of them. Some of the yeah. students are not going to school. I'm not. So the disease and the, and the virus, you know what I'm saying, was black students. Yeah. But there were structures in place, you know, there were systems in place to protect that stupid <laughs> ideology. And we got to understand it's like how are we using law enforcement strategies in our schools? Why are we always trying to punish our way out of stuff? Why aren't we trying to teach her and learn our way out of stuff? Too many times when students are doing something that we don't approve of, we act like an instructional law enforcer. You're not talking the right way. Well, you must be dumb. You didn't, you didn't spell that right. You must not be a good writer. When we know people like Zero Neil Hurston wrote a dang near a whole dang book on the eyes of watching God using broken English, man, bringing in a new form of language that we know is Ebonics. And, they, and she said, I will not be put in a box. I will not be marginalized. But we got to understand as, as educators, we have, if we don't like, if you don't like law enforcement and you want to defund them, then defund the law enforcement inside you when you're inside your classroom in your hallways. Okay now. Okay now. So it's, so it's, it's interesting. I've heard you kind of work through this defunding schools thing and defunding law enforcement thing. And both times I have my initial, but then also my, them as facts, right? So like, if we're talking about defunding the police, we need to engage in that, not in the way that is bumper sticker politics, but disinvesting from practices that aren't working and investing in practices that are working. And it's the same things with schools. We need to disinvest in things that aren't working, punitive measures, punitive systems, and invest in things that actually work. Yeah, exactly. I don't want either one of them necessarily to be defunded. I don't want yeah. that. Yeah. I just want things to be balanced out. Exactly. Yeah. Why are we keep investing in stuff that's not working? Yeah. Well, and, and, and for me, I've positioned myself in kind of an awkward spot where like there are these school choice fights that happen in communities. And I am somebody who based on my like union membership and like work in a public school for 13 years, like have been an advocate for public schools. But at the same time, I've seen public schools fail enough kids and hadn't seen enough frustrated black mothers that I would never tell somebody they shouldn't have sent their kids to a charter school. And so now I'm sitting here at this international school over here where like it's, it's choice, right? And so my views on what, on what is best for the school system and what is best for society and my views on what is best for individual black family and what families should advocate for, those views are not the same. And so, like, I believe in a robust system of public education. I believe in well-funded public schools, but I also believe that those schools are not serving black and brown families, then those black and brown families deserve options. And even if those options are not the options I would like them to choose, I am not one to tell folks who a system who I who a system that I am a part of or have been a part of for most of my career. I am not one to tell them you have to keep sending your kids to this place that's not serving them. And so, like, I I I just I I if folks are hearing what you're saying the wrong way or, or hearing it some type of way, like understand that it's really about investing what's working and meeting needs of communities and meeting news in particular of black families. For sure. For sure. Exactly. It's like, for instance, I agree. And to add on to what you said, it's like standardized testing. I'm not saying get rid of standardized testing, but create alternatives, you know, saying means where children can show that they can meet standards. Why? Why are we investing in a system that has no empirical data that is an indicator or proves that a person, number one, is intelligent or their mm. trajectory in the world? Standardized testing is just a way, you know what I'm saying, to, you know what I'm saying, 
basically keep that line, that lane very narrow for, a, a, an, a you know, an elite group of people. But yeah. there's no indicator, there's no empirical data that says standardized testing proves or shows a person's intelligence. Yeah. Well, it's a sorting mechanism, right? And <laughs> hello, we're talking about caste right now. The purpose of a test is to sort kids into categories so you can basically put them on trajectories for higher education and for life afterwards. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking to students from the University of Washington about a week ago, uh, online, obviously. And one of the points that like, just I, I think is worth saying is that stimulus-based multiple choice ex exams are not a life skill. Like I am 41 years old and like my testing abilities are top notch, but are useless in adulthood. Like, like that is not the measure of who I am. And so it's interesting to me, you brought up testing because something that I've seen over time is, is that black families have been some of the large, loudest advocates for testing because testing is the only way they can show that the system is not serving their kids. And establishment educators are some of the loudest opponents of testing because the testing shows that those families aren't being served. And so it's, 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 it's so like you're talking about, you said earlier on, there's a caste system in school. Like we see this caste system, like in education policy as well. Like we see that we have education reformers who are well-heeled and funded by philanthropists. We see teachers who are organized and have these multi-million dollar unions that like, and I support unions. Like I enjoyed making what I was making in Washington state. And I make a little less here, full stop. Like, like, like real talk. Say I support unions too, I right? Do. But and but then at the bottom of that caste system, as far as abs goes, are the parents, particularly low income black and brown parents. So even there, there's a caste system that manifests itself. All right, logic. I, I want to bring this home a little bit. Can you talk about some of the other opportunities that people can you can have to engage with your work about, like your writing, your music, your podcast? Uh, yeah, um, you can check me out on um, on Anchor. Logic on Man's militant, you know, intellectual, you know, um, commentaries. I'm on there. I'm also on 91.3 KBCS. You can check the, they run my commentaries also. And like, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, I'm, I'm on Twitter. You know, I'm even on TikTok, you know, some funny stuff. <laughs> I actually published a, um, co-authored a, a new book called, um, um, learning how to use your hurt to love stronger. And you can get that on www.ctalk.com. I wrote a book with Sister um, Carmelita Moore just talking about how you we used our hurt in our relationships, you know what I'm saying, to heal. And it actually has a reflection part. Um, we can't just keep reading books. It has a reflection part with the with um, with questions on it so you can that guides you through the book. So yeah, that's you know, that's part of the um, the work that I'm doing along with the Griot Party experience, you can find us at www.thegriotparty.com. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. So one last question. You talked about the work that you're doing. What is the work that you want folks who are listening to this conversation to be doing? Like, so what is the homework that you are assigning for other folks based on this book cast? Mm. That's a deep question. That's dope. I want people to say, number one, where do I fit out in the caste system, wherever I be? Pick a location in my home, at school, at work, in society. Where am I at in that caste system? Do I have power? Do I have privilege? Do I have access? Okay. If I have power, privilege, and I have access, how am I using that power, privilege, and access to help people who don't have as much as me. Mm. And I think we all have power, privilege, and access more than someone else. We can always find some kind of way. Yeah. You know, even, even an able-bodied Black person who's been historically oppressed over the years has more power, you know what I'm saying, and access and privilege than a person, you know, a Black person with some kind of dis disability or different ability. You know what I'm saying? And so we got to look at that. Or even a black person who lives in an economically poor, you know, country that they call third world countries, which is usually first world countries. But that's a different conversation. But how are <laughs> your privilege and your access to to help those who don't have as much as you? Because if you if you if you're not I'm not telling you to go out and save the world. 
You can't recycle every single plastic bottle, all right? I'm just saying, what part are you doing that can reduce your footprint when it mm-hmm. comes to perpetuating cast? That's deep. That's deep. Logic, one of the things I appreciate about you is not only are you working in the community and doing this organizing work, leading these griot parties, not only are you working in schools, working with students, but also you are a Black father of three delightful young people. And so the next time you see, particularly the boys, I taught them, next time you see Ski and Mech, uh, give them Mr. Bowling's best and tell them that I hope they're doing well. Yeah, man, I appreciate you, man. We miss you in the classroom. And but uh, thank you for leaving your spirit at Lincoln High School. And thank you for inspiring other teachers to um, help our students, you know, you know, meet standards and learn this system. And just for the record, before we sign off, look, I'm all about learning how to work systems. Right. So you can create your own system. I'm not a person says, Let's do away with standardized testing. Let's do away with law enforcement. Let's do away with our education system. Let's do away with the system. No, because so many of our people depend on this system to live. That's why we have to study it so we can learn how to create our own. Mm-hmm. At yeah, some this- point, you've got to stop going to the pharmacy and getting that $50 bottle of ibuprofen. At some point, you got to learn how to meditate, do yoga, drink more water, yep. stop eating anti-inflammatory foods. That's going to stop that headache from happening and reduce your stress. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But until yep. then, use the system, learn how to use the system, so at least you don't have to pay for that $50 bottle of ibuprofen. <laughs> that's it. So like, that's one of the reasons why I have the feelings I have about gentrification. Because gentrification is the improving of a neighborhood and the bringing of new services. The real enemy is displacement. Like black folks deserve to be in an improving environment with access to traffic, starts to transit, and with like other retail opportunities. The problem is displacement. And so, yeah, I just. And the reality, we know that the system has the, the, the infrastructure to keep those black people there as they clean it up. Right. But the reality, the value system of whiteness says you are not good enough to have these better conditions. That's the bottom line. Yep. Facts, facts. Hey, Logic, thank you so much for making time, man. Hey, Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated. If you believe in vaccines, if you don't believe in vaccines, start believing vaccines. Be good, y'all. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I didn't get to tell no one to uh, uh, take this L. (laughs) Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.